Rabbi Fred Newlander had been an effective religious leader building from scratch the largest Reformed synagogue in southern New Jersey, commanding respect of community leaders from both religious and political spheres. But after a very tortuous process that included the admission of numerous affairs, the surprising discovery of two contracted hitmen and one hung jury, Rabbi Newlander was eventually convicted of murdering his wife. And as you might imagine, this caused the congregation to grapple with the profound questions that cut to the core of their faith. How does a believer reconcile the sins of a spiritual leader with the message of peace he so eloquently espoused? To us, he was God's voice right here, said one congregant. How could he deceive us for all those years? How could he let down so many people who looked to him for guidance? Rediscovering a book this week as I was cleaning out my bookshelves that tells the story of Rabbi Newlander and his congregation named Mkor Shalom, which means a source of peace. I found myself drawn into the questions that are alarmingly vital for someone foolish enough to ascend the steps of authority in a religious institution. Someone in my shoes knows very well the tension between the tenets of his faith and the daily struggle of his life. In a practical sense, this tension turns on a matter of proportion. Religious leaders, you know, usually get away with smaller, more routine sorts of faults and failings. Indeed, as a matter of course... They must, or no one could ever serve in such a capacity. You probably don't think of it like this, but you actually let me off the hook a bit for some of my faults and failings. But then numerous affairs, embezzlement, or as in the case of the accused rabbi, even murder are matters that ascend a scale of increasing alarm leading to congregational bewilderment and disillusionment. Another congregant reported that Rabbi Newlander performed his son's bar mitzvah a few months before the killing. And when the accusations later arose at the family dinner table, he urged his children to remember the distinction between the frailties of human beings and the power of God. You question these things because he's a role model and he's supposed to behave in a certain way. But I tell my kids, people are people. The reality is you have to teach them not to be in awe of anyone. Which, of course, is sound advice. Still, you know, as a parent myself, I was always hopeful my children were able to find good role models beyond just Melissa and me. Persons that were worth learning from and emulating. And then I have found that longing for role models continues well into adulthood. I don't think that yearning ever really ends for a person who continues to want to grow. It's still true for me. I still yearn for people who serve as 
role models, people from whom I learn good things. Those of us in this sanctuary often look to religious figures and perhaps especially to sacred scriptures for this help, which then brings us to this strange story we heard Mickey read from Luke called The Parable of the Dishonest Manager. To recap the story, a certain rich man had a manager who was squandering his property. He calls the manager in, rips into him about how he's conducting business, and fires him. The manager quickly decides, though, to prepare for his future by discounting the debts debts owed to his former employer so he can generate goodwill within the community. The amounts described in the scriptures are large, worth a lot of money. It would not have been lost on the listeners in Jesus' day. The story ends with the rich man commending the manager because his cunning cast an aura of honesty and goodness on the wealthy man while shrewdly providing for the manager's own future. Well, this story seems to fly in the face of the good role model theory we've been discussing because Jesus seems to be setting up the behavior of an unscrupulous man as something to be emulated. He adds, For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of the light. There's a lot of conversation in the scholarly literature about what this all means. My sense is Jesus is having some serious fun with his disciples here. Heard within the context of his entire ethical framework, he's hardly throwing the Jewish ethical system out the window, but he is playing with his disciples' heads in a twisty logic that might translate, it's better to be a resourceful rascal than a saintly schlemiel. He was not telling them to go forth and lie, cheat, and steal, but he was telling them that they might use all of their shrewdness, skill, and finesse to advance the cause of God's kingdom. There was nothing passive about God's intention for the world and for their lives. Nothing passive at all. A passive response didn't reflect a realistic appraisal of their circumstance. What was their circumstance? Well, God was moving among them. God was moving among them, which was fomenting a kind of crisis in a class all by itself. Here's another way to get at it. We can imagine that given the ambiguous global economic situation, Wall Streeters are jumping and jiving as fast as they can, bringing to bear every shred of shrewdness they have to maximize their position. They're under a lot of pressure to perform, aren't they? Both from their employers as well as from their own inner drivenness. And by the way, not exactly the same thing, but did you see the news this week about Wells Fargo in which, it's kind of mind-blowing really, in which 5,300 employees have been fired for creating two million phony accounts for over five years. The phony accounts earned the bank unwarranted fees 
and allowed Wells Fargo employees to boost their sales figures and make more money. It seems there was a culture that fostered this unscrupulous behavior. And it remains to be seen how high this corruption actually goes. But now, but now, friends, let's be clear that those of us who have any sort of investment of any sort, whether in large or small denomination, are counting on our brokers and counselors and banks cunning to advance our positions. And if they cut a corner or two, do we care so long as we benefit? Now, imagine if that level of intensity, that level of focus, creativity, and craftiness were brought to bear on matters of the spirit, matters of the heart, matters of the kingdom we honor in here. That comes close to the point Jesus was trying to make. Consider all of the energy, the Two presidential candidates and their surrogates put into shading their version of the truth. We might imagine a parable about the slippery politician wending his way through an election. At the end of it, tweaking us with the candidate's cunning, Jesus might say, the people of this age are shrewder in dealing with their own generation than are the people of the light, meaning people evidently like us since we've chosen to sit in these pews this morning. And this lesson, then, friends, would not be lost on us if we didn't get bogged down in personality and preference. Not emulating the specifics of their behavior, could we emulate their decisiveness in responding to the shifting dynamics of the race? Could we do this, you see, on behalf of the crisis that the coming of God's kingdom always provokes? Which is always a crisis of love and justice. We don't normally think of it like this. But an authentic commitment to the kingdom of God always provokes a crisis of one sort or another. It certainly did for the disciples around Jesus. And interestingly, from the world's point of view, it was at least minimally a political crisis. What gives that away is the manner of Jesus' death. That Jesus still provokes shows the crisis was actually much larger, that it encompassed the realm of the Spirit, which pervades every time and every place, confronting every heart and every soul, even to the present day, including you and me. Jesus wants to provoke us. Now, true enough, there was only one person in the world with the scope of decision-making of the President of the United States at any given moment, although I would argue that every one of us has influence and responsibilities within our corner of the world. As Fred Craddock, the old southern preacher, put it, most of us will not this week christen a ship, write a book, end a war, Appoint a cabinet, dine with a queen, convert a nation, or be burned at the stake. More likely, the week coming will present no more than a chance to give a cup of water, write a note, visit a nursing home, vote, 
teach a Sunday school class, share a meal, tell a child a story, go to choir practice. Yeah, friends, here's the thing. Every, every one of these activities, small as they are, requires a set of decisions and the assumption of responsibility. Everyone. How did Luke report it? Whoever is faithful in a little is faithful also in much. Each and every choice, decision that we make shapes how we will live and what sort of world we want to live in. And there you can see clearly how listening to Jesus provokes a personal crisis. Now, Rabbi Newlander was overwhelmed by the world's corruptions while wearing the mantle of ethical integrity. We cannot very well tell a clever, twisty parable about his decision-making and ultimate fate. At the end, he was a simple fraud, consumed by the most banal human temptations. There's a straightforward moral to his story. But make no mistake about this. His fate was consummated by one decision at a time. The first decision was small. Here it is, friends, spiritually mature people finally come to realize that the fate of the world actually does rest in their hands. Always has always will.